Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. My name's Chris. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, I'm looking forward to doing so. Um, and we're in that time where we say both Happy Thanksgiving and Merry Christmas eventually, right? So that's, that's the world we're in right now. Let me invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1. We have been studying the book of Colossians, and we're taking a break for an Advent series that I hope you'll be here to engage with us on. Um, I'll tell you more about that in just a second. Um, But as we get started, let me go to the Lord in prayer and invite you to join me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we've had so far, opening up your word, um, having the opportunity to read it together. Um, Lord, we have approached your throne through prayer, uh, and we have raised worship up to you. We, we ask, Lord, that you continue to be glorified in our time together as now we approach your word and ask you to be our teacher. Oh, Lord, I need your help to do this. Um, help me not to get in the way and to cloud things up, but to make uh, simple and clear uh, the good news from your word. And give us all uh, fertile soil in which that word can land and grow and develop and help us Uh, be transformed um, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up in Rossville, uh, but most of our day-to-day living was across the state line in East Ridge. Uh, In the mid-70s, my parents owned, opened up a Christian bookstore, and uh, that was right there on Ringgold Road. And it's right across from what we used to call the Red Food Store, right? And down from the tunnels, and just... A couple blocks away, you know, we grew up in a time where it was relatively safe to send your kids on out. We could, Todd and I and my other brothers, we, we'd walk up and down the streets and the sidewalks and stop into shops and visit and, and got to know some of the other shop owners. And they probably realized my parents were just getting us out of their hair and into theirs. But we would we'd travel up and down the way. I mean, two blocks from the bookstore was, some of y'all may not know this, but it was, there was a Krispy Kreme Donuts shop right on Ringgold Road, right next to the uh, bowling alley. So we'd go up there and have a donut and keep walking a couple more blocks up the road toward the tunnels to the greatest building outside of FAO Schwartz in New York City. At least it was to this seven-year-old. That store, that building was called A&M Toy Store. And it was a wonderland of toys. I mean, they had a door, everything about it screamed. Kids. They had a door, the front door, a doorway entrance for adults, and then a door right beside it that was built just for me. At least I thought it was, as did every other kid that walked in that door, right? And you walked into that room through that door that was made just for me that I let other kids use, but it was, it was for me. And you'd walk in, and you just kind of, every time, it never failed. Just be uh, just gasp at just how packed that room could be with goodness. Along the the center, I mean the roof of this place was a train that went through, and and there was there were just evidences of Christmas, no matter what time of year it was, evidence of that just all throughout the building. And if you it was just a labyrinth of rooms stacked on top of each other, and every one was packed to the gill. Uh, with things that you just wanted to play and added to your wish list and even added to your Christmas list, right? And if you could survive sneaking through the Barbie room to get to where the goodness was in the other places, it was by far 
the greatest building outside of FAO Swartz in New York City. The, the, the only thing that exceeded that building in goodness with the contents of it was the tower that extended from the center of that building that reached up to the heavens toward the moon, just like a beacon of light for every kid in the city. And it was a countdown, a digital countdown at the top of that tower. It would look kind of like a fireplace, a little watchtower, bell tower up there. But at the top of it was a, a number system that would decrease every day as you approached Christmas Day. And it would start the day after Christmas with 364. And then as you drove past Ringgold Road or as if you came down Germantown Road, you had to it, you would just kind of butt into where that toy store was and you'd see that number right there and every kid would say 364 more days until that day. And then it would be 227 days and, and whatever you were in the path of that. She, my wife passed that by every day on her way to school so she would always see the countdown. So when it got to 100 days, you know it's getting close. It's getting close. 30 days and you're in the sweet spot, Right? to the 12 days of Christmas until finally, we always spent Christmas Eve at my grandmother's house in North Chattanooga. Long before it was cool to call it the North Shore, we just said we were going north of the river and it was North Chattanooga. We'd have dinner over there, open up presents, and then come back home and on our way to our house, we'd stop at some friend's house who lived right behind A&M Toy Store. So we'd take Germantown Road and see that building right there and on that day, you saw the number one. And you knew that your waiting was about to be over because the next morning was that big day, right? And the season of waiting was coming to a close. Well, we've entered into a season and it's not a season for necessarily just a day, but it's a season of Advent. And that season of waiting is not just for the countdown of a clock to get down to one or to zero necessarily, but it's a season of waiting where we join generation after generation of generations who have looked forward to that day or who looked forward to that day when the, the coming of the promised Messiah finally came. And that season of waiting um, is here. We sing songs about it. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in Thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth Thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born Thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now Thy gracious kingdom bring. By Thine own eternal spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. Rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. And the opening chapters of the book of Luke provides the story of that Messiah's coming. It really provides us the story behind the stories in many cases. And interspersed throughout that story are three songs. They're not really songs, but they were pretty rhythmically uttered and rhythmically placed in our scriptures and and they came from the wellspring of the hearts and through the lips of people who had long awaited not the countdown of a day but the coming of a messiah and for generations they had heard of the promise of his coming and these people uttered the songs 
that declared their praise. And we'll look at that first song together this morning. And by God's grace, learn to apply a few lessons um, really from the posture of the person who sang it. And in this case, it's Mary, the young virgin who had been promised, um, well, not promised, but told that she would be carrying the coming Messiah. Look in your scriptures with me at Luke chapter 1. And we'll read this together. Uh, This is Mary's song of praise. Um, The first words of the song uh, in Latin, it kind of is how we've derived its name throughout the years, the Magnificat. Um, I don't know, I'm not a Latin expert, but I just share that with you in case your heading says that, that's why that's there. But follow along as I read verses 46 through 56. This is the word of the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. And from this passage, I want us to notice three things, three things as we look at Mary's song. First is uh, how, or from where does Mary exalt? From where does Mary exalt? And then the second thing, whom does she exalt? And then the final thing this morning, about what does she exalt? Notice the very first words here. From where does Mary exalt? She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. First notice this, that Mary praised God from the abundance of her heart. You can say it this way, it was from the depths of her heart that Mary exalted God. Jesus would later, after he was, became flesh and dwelt among us, he becomes adult and he starts his teaching ministry, he would later say, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And it's clear that Mary's heart was accustomed to worshiping God. We're tipped off, really, by the the use of a couple of words in the opening outburst. And I I use that word intentionally, the outburst of Mary's praise. Notice these two words, her soul and her spirit. Those two words, when put together, may bring to your mind a familiar passage from the author of Hebrews that that describe how far-reaching God's Word is when when it does its work within us. And Bill has already alluded to our desire to hold fast to God's Word and how God, through His powerful, creative Word, has created all there is and has done miraculous work through 
His Word. But be reminded about Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, about the, the depths of God's Word's reach. It says this, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It was from the abundance of her heart, even the depths of her heart, that Mary exalted God. And maybe this was, as Gary Isaacs led us in our scripture reading this morning, maybe this was Mary's way of saying what she had heard the psalmist pray and say probably all her life from Psalm chapter 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. I'm sure those of you who um, have spent any if or maybe even a lot of time around David King have heard him say, she praised what she prized. And to put it another way, what was deep inside of Mary, she delighted in. And what she delighted in, she declared. No matter who or no matter what, she had to interrupt to let it out. So a couple things. Mary praised God from the abundance of her heart and her praise was interruptive. To kind of see this, you look back through the, really the context and the makeup of, of the story about what's going on. Days before Mary sang this song, she had received a guest, a visit from, from an angel, the angel Gabriel, who had spent time in the presence of God, he had told Zechariah. And, and Zach, not Zechariah, but Gabriel the angel tells Mary, hey, behold, you have found favor with God. And and you will conceive in your womb and you'll bear a son and that son's name will be called Jesus. And we know, and she was told in that moment, that birth was going to be miraculous because her pregnancy would be the result of the Holy Spirit coming upon her and, and the power of the, Holy, of the Most High God overshadowing her, ensuring that the baby would be called Holy, the Son of God. During that same visit, Gabriel's same visit, Gabriel told Mary that her relative Elizabeth was also, Elizabeth was old, long past the age of childbearing, and she was barren, having never experienced the joy of childbirth ever. But she, Mary was told, was now expecting her own child. And in fact, she had conceived and was six months along in her pregnancy. And I don't know whether Mary just didn't want to face the heat of her fiance to tell him the news of, hey, I'm expecting. Or maybe she didn't want to face her father or whatever the case may be. Well, all we know next is she had gotten word about Elizabeth's birth. And then in verse 39 of chapter one, it says, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the town of Judah, where she was going to visit Elizabeth. And you know, it could be that she had to be around Elizabeth because she had to share the news and to talk with someone who would understand. Maybe it was that she wanted to be around the person who had also received word from, well, at least her husband, Zachariah, had 
And she was the fruit and the, re- the recipient of God's miraculous touch as well. Whatever the motivation and reason, Mary went with haste to Elizabeth. And that's, a, that's where the next thing begins. We, we saw in verses 26 through 38 where uh, Gabriel had visited Mary, tells of the pregnancy, tells of the miraculous way the child is going to come, and then we see that Mary goes to Elizabeth's house. And as soon as she walks into the house and utters her greetings to Elizabeth, something wild happens, right? As soon as she arrives, she greets Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth hears the greeting, the baby inside of her, I like to say he does a cartwheel and flips around. But the scriptures does not exactly say that. He just says, um, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's what she said to Mary. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And right after Elizabeth finishes her words, almost like a kid who walks into the room who's so exciting, can't contain himself any longer, and has just got to interrupt whatever conversation's going on about what he wants to share with his parents or something, Mary goes on. And that's why the word is so key for us to see in verse 46 when it says, and Mary said, I want you to see that the praise that erupted from the depths of her heart was interruptive. And and, And Mary said, so she interrupts with praise of her own and her praise was packed with scripture. And the scripture that her praise was packed with highlighted the time that God had kept His promises to His people throughout the generations of time. And that's when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Here's a girl that's been brought low. Brought low by her Life, of course, it sounds very much like they were not people of means, right? Very poor people. In fact, she and Joseph later on would travel to be counted in a great census and, and couldn't find nor afford a place to stay. Their, their offering when Jesus was later born was that of a poor person's offering, having been given allowance to have a smaller offering. So their family was of of low esteem and had been brought low. She references her own humble estate. Did she mean that she's not only poor, but she's pregnant? And if the people in her village found out, and even if her fiance finds out, he's got every right to do away with her? Whatever we need to read into the fact that her humble estate was about her, it's not just her means and her life and her circumstances, but it's also the posture of her heart. She is a humble person before the Lord and has even declared to God, her master, that I'm your bond servant and slave. Be it done to me according to your word. But what I want you to see is in spite the fact that she's been brought low, her praise for God erupts when she's squeezed. And because her perspective is not, woe is me, or can we not ever catch a break? Or what are some of the responses that you and I might 
offer when we just think that, man, life is just stacked against me. When is this ever going to change? It was never really her perspective, evidently, of this, but her, her, the evidence of her low estate and her humble estate was praise. Instead of having this perspective of, woe is me, it was more like this. Look how God is fulfilling His promises in and to the world through me. Her praise was interruptive. And her praise was informed. We've read her praise. We've read from verses 46 through 56. And we've seen that Mary praised God from her knowledge of the Scriptures. Her heart and her mind was saturated with the Word. In a rapid-fire mashup of quoted Scriptures, this poetic outburst of Mary echoes Old Testament language. We've read Psalm 103 on purpose, not just to tune our hearts to praise the Lord, but also because found in her prayer, and found in her song of praise, is words from Psalm 103 among 13 to 15 other places throughout the Old Testament. Paul would later write in Ephesians chapter 4 that part of, our, part of the effect of the gospel in us and part of the effect of God's working sanctification in us is that believers would be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And by God's grace, His Word, God's Word, had been worked into Mary who had seemed, and and the effect of that transformation seemed to have been real inside Mary, enabling her to have a perspective that, that really positioned her to see her circumstances in light of God's consistent activity throughout time. And if we just put a pause right there, that's a grace. It is a grace to be able to see our circumstances as uh, through the lens of God's faithfulness and constant activity through time, as opposed to being consumed with our circumstances as an end in and of themselves. And we're prone to do that. We're prone to see our circumstances is through the lens of this is all there is and how could this get any worse or you, you, you fill in the line there instead of seeing our circumstances through the lens of what God's doing in and through the generations and also in and through me. And Mary's, Mary's perspective here is a grace-given good gift. May this be or become all of our own perspectives. Mary praised God from the knowledge of her script of the scriptures. And as we saturate ourselves in God's word, this becomes our perspective too. Second thing I want us to look at from Mary's song of praise is whom does Mary exalt? Whom does Mary exalt? It's interesting because in the first four verses here, um, Mary refers to God in four different ways. And the titles Mary used for God reflects His character. Notice how in the opening outburst of Mary's interruptive praise, she refers to God in these four ways. In the Old Testament, 
Names used for God would shed light on different aspects of his being, on different aspects of his character. So Mary's utterance here, this interruptive praise, refers to God as Lord, refers to God as my Savior, the Mighty One, and the Holy One. Notice these. I'll spend more time on the first and little time on the remaining three. But just to point out these. Verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. It shouldn't surprise us that Mary was pleased to recognize God as Master. It shouldn't surprise us that Mary is pleased to recognize Him not only as Master, but as King and Ruler. And and really this, the One who has all the right to command and direct. And that's what Mary is saying here. When when she refers to Him as Lord, our minds should kind of harken back to something I've already said. Look back at verse 38. After Mary has had this What's got to, what had to have been a frightening encounter with Gabriel, and he tells her about all that is going to happen through her and what is happening to her in that moment, Mary's response is shocking to me. Verse 38. Behold, I am the bondservant of the Lord. In other words, you are God, I am not. Or you are master, I'm the servant. And then she says, let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departs. One major difference between Mary and me is she didn't live under the illusion that her life was hers in the first place. Or that it was rightly hers. Or that her life as A servant of God was hers to direct or control. But it was rightly His. This is a posture that is a grace. And although it recognizes subservience, it's also freeing. We can let the additional three names that he uses or she uses here speak for themselves. Verse 47 And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Verse 49, the first part of it. For He who is mighty has done great things for me. Uh, The second part of verse 49. And holy is His name. Mary would later ponder all of the things in her heart that God was doing and that she was being blessed to have a front row seat on. And as Daryl Bach writes this, Growing in her womb was the fulfillment of all of God's promises. So think about this. I painted a picture of a toy store being looked at through the lens of a seven-year-old. But what if you're looking at the fulfillment of God's promises that you've heard about all your short life but that all the generations prior to that had pointed to. God was finally bringing about the salvation of His people. God my Savior. And He would do so through the person of Jesus who would grow up as the Lamb of God 
to take away the sins of the world. And only, get this, only the mighty one, he who is mighty, only the mighty one, in other words, you could say the, the one who is able. Only the mighty one who has no equal. Which is what Mary's saying when he refers, she refers to God as the Holy One. Holy is His name. In other words, saying that He has no equal. There is none like Him. Only that God could accomplish so great and glorious a salvation. So no wonder she interrupts her relative who's too old to have a kid, but she's months along in her pregnancy. And she's got all kinds of things that she could say in celebration of that. But what does she spend her words of praise saying? Blessed are you. But no wonder she interrupts that. Because she's having a front seat view of how God, the mighty one, the holy one, among whom there is no equal and there is no other, who is ushering in the salvation of his people through Jesus. It's true that the titles Mary used for God reflect God's character. But notice this also. That the title, the titles that Mary used for God also expose her, her own humility. All these titles show and serve to show Mary's humble spirit and her humble perspective forms the basis of her interruptive praise. Refreshingly, she knew that God owed her nothing, but that she owed God everything. Everything that comes from God, every good gift from Him is an undeserved grace. Let's move on to the final point here as we look at and have a word about what does Mary exalt? About what does Mary exalt? I just want to quickly highlight the four, not the four things, but four things from the list of things that Mary exalts God about. The first is this, and it's found in verse 48. God has looked upon her. Notice in verse 48 this language, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. God has looked on her, looked upon her. Mary's not just saying that God has offered a passing glance toward her like you and I might at a red light when someone outside our window is asking for something. This is beautifully illustrated in just a few chapters over in Luke chapter 9. Uh, you don't have to turn there unless you want to make a note of that and read this story again later on. But in Luke chapter 9, verse 38, we see these words, And behold, a man from the crowd cried out. His son was possessed by a spirit. None of the disciples could help him out. And when Jesus is passing by, a huge crowd is all around, and he cries out to the teacher and says this, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. For he's my only child. 
And the story goes on there. He offers some explanation, the dad does, about how he can't find help any other place. But I want you to see that the language that he uses to cry out to Jesus is similar to the language that Mary uses in her song of praise. Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. Jesus did more than look. Jesus says, bring your son to me. And the Lord spoke and the Lord healed him. In the Old Testament, you might remember several experiences that, that highlight God's willingness to look upon his people. Not least of which is, do you remember the maidservant by the name of Hagar? Whose son was Ishmael? And, and the passage in Genesis reminds us of what's going on there. But in that Old Testament passage of Genesis, God saw Hagar in the wilderness and gave her shelter and safety. And as a result of all that God was doing, as he looked upon Hagar, Hagar then responded in a prayer back to God and called him by a name. Again, reflective of his nature. And she said, you are the God of seeing. Time and time we could look at Old Testament things. We could look at Hannah, who cried out to God and, and the Lord remembered her and looked upon her. So when Mary says in verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, it's not just a glance. God looked upon Mary and he did so with affection and with the moves to intervene. And this morning you can be confident that God looks upon you. And as we celebrate this season of Advent, knowing what happened, knowing that the culmination of the season of waiting ended in the coming of the Messiah and the Messiah grew and the Messiah taught, the Messiah healed, the Messiah declared, the Messiah died, the Messiah was resurrected and the Messiah offers life to all who would believe and trust in Him. We know that God looked upon us as well by offering us a way to salvation. And that way was in a person. And that person was Jesus. God has looked upon Mary. Verse 49, God had done great things for her. Notice this language, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. In other words, she's saying, he, he who is the only one who is able has done great things for me. And if you just looked on the base level of what he's done for her, he has exalted her. He has caused the miraculous to happen within her and through her, all nations would be blessed. Great indeed. God had touched her. Great indeed. He would demonstrate his power through her and then through him. God has done great things for her. Look at the next thing. God has proven consistent faithfulness throughout the generations. I won't take time to expound on all of these things and you're saying, thank goodness. But in the next verses, starting with verse 51 on through 55, Mary highlights in this rapid 
display of God's faithfulness through Scripture. Um, Mary highlights His faithfulness. Listen to the words of the text now. Verse 51. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. And as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. It's this last line that I want to highlight before we close. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Yes, God has proven consistent faithfulness throughout the generations. But God has not limited his mercy to previous generations. Be encouraged with this. God's mercy is great. Two times, the bookends of of this passage include uh, that word mercy. And you'll find them uh, throughout there. Verse 50, and His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Verse 55, or verse 54, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. God's mercy is great and extends beyond the Jewish people. It extends to all who believe by faith in His Son. In Genesis, another passage that we could look back to that no doubt she would have been thinking, we learn that the promise that God made to Abram, and Abraham, I should say Abraham, was going to extend to generations forever. Abraham was promised that he would be the father of, of a multitude of nations. And God promised that in Him all the families of the earth would be blessed. That blessing and the fulfillment of that promise was carried in the womb of Mary. And through Him, peoples from every nation of the globe would be offered everlasting life. Thanks be to God about these two bookends. Verse 50 that His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. In verse 54, that He fulfilled His promises in remembrance of His mercy. What I'd like to do is push pause too. And Todd's going to come in a moment and lead us in a song that that helps us walk in response to in remembrance of the fact that He who secured and fulfilled His promises for His people will hold us fast until the end. So in the same way that Mary had confidence uh, in God's fulfilling His promises and an ability to view His circumstances, her, sorry, her circumstances through the lens of God's faithfulness and His Word, You and I can look back at a song that was sung centuries ago by Mary and be encouraged in the faithfulness of God today. We can know that in the midst of our circumstances that we're looking at and viewing in light of God's faithfulness and His Word, that we can have confidence that He's looking upon us as well.
and holding us fast in our salvation in Him and as He launches us um, in the world. So I'd like to sing this, invite us to sing this song together, He Will Hold Me Fast. Mark's going to come and lead us in a time of remembrance of the apex of God's faithfulness throughout the generations. And then I'll come back and close with just a point or two of application and we'll have our benediction. Todd, would you come lead us?